I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And welcome once again to everybody out there on this beautiful Sunday live from the Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. It is November 10th and you are listening to I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. How you doing? All right, all right. Oh, we're getting ready for that big Bears-Lions clash here. Uh, you know, two Detroit kids against somebody that doesn't care about either team. It's a wonderful <laughs> showdown. Today we are I'm jo- actually a Bears fan. Are you so, a Bears yeah, fan now? I grew up a Lions fan, but I'm a Bears fan Okay. Now. Well, they, they, both teams stink, so it could be a 0-0 draw, and then Absolutely. Uh, everybody would be, be miserable about it. Uh, that will be taking, that'll be kicking off, by the way, after our show. So if you're looking for the Bears, don't go anywhere. Listen to something about books instead. Uh, we are joined today by the magic of the telephone line by the author of The Virginity of Famous Men. It is a book out from Bloomsbury. Christine Sneed joins us from Los Angeles. Christine, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for making time to join us, by the way. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me to be on the show. I'm really thrilled. Great. So, Christine, you used to uh, actually you used to reside here in Chicago. Is that correct? I did, yes, until the end of May of 2018. Oh. I've been out in, in uh, Pasadena for about a year and a half. So, Christine, why did you abandon us? Tell us the truth. Well, the truth is, okay, so I felt like with everything being sort of in upheaval after the election of 2016, I felt that I couldn't keep putting off my fantasy of living in L.A. So I moved out here with my partner, Adam. I guess it's sort of like midlife renewal. Mm-hmm. And um, I also have been teaching myself how to write screen material. Uh, I'm still writing fiction, um, but I just, you know, I thought, well, I'm also tired, to be frank, of the Midwestern winter, which I've, you know, I've lived in that climate all my life. So I thought, why not, you know, some sun might be nice for a change. Mm -hmm. Well, I had a bet before the show with my wife, who is actually the professional reader, that you either moved out there because you were in screenwriting or of some mysterious lust to live near the Rose Bowl. So I'm glad I was right on both (laughs) accounts. Actually, Mike and I... Mike and I had a conversation. Mike asked me the same question. I said, "Well, you know, some, what are the some of these stories were about actors and movie stars, et cetera." So I was thinking maybe that she, or maybe that you had moved out there. To well, these were st- written before before the move. I, I'm surprised actually that you say that now because uh, quite a few of the stories involve the the film industry in one aspect or another. So I figured you had had LA experience beforehand. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing of your, <laughs> yes, of your yeah. life choices. Yeah, yeah. Had I, you, you had know, you, I. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, had you had any experience in the film industry? Uh, well, as a you know, like probably most everyone, I've been a lifelong fan of film, and and uh, so I've paid a lot of attention to movies since I was a kid. And my second book, Little Known Facts, is actually all about a family with a movie star at its center. So. I just wanted to write about fame, really. I mean, just the fact that it's basically a type of religion that captivates, you know, probably billions of people on the planet. So it just has been really fascinating to me for a long time as a topic. And, I, I mean, as a movie fan, too, I just, you know, I, I wanted to try to write screenplays. And so I've been doing that, as I said. So it's, it's been a pretty humbling experience, frankly, hmm. but a good one. 
that's really interesting. I mean, let, let's pick up on that topic because one of the things that I noticed in this book, uh, most of the stories in, and there are short stories in The Virginia of Famous Men. We should mention that. It's, it's not a novel. It's a series of short stories that are not linked. Um, but I've noticed a kind of common thread through them that you do talk about some of the pressures and um, rot at the core of being famous, as well as the problems that occur between uh, lovers and uh, parents and children and the kind of relationships that are put under pressure in the public eye. And I wonder if you could discuss a little bit about why that fascinates you as an author. Well, I, you know, I think part of it is that I kind of wanted to demystify the idea that a movie star or a public figure is different from everyone else. I mean, obviously, in some ways, they are, but... They still have to brush their teeth in the morning. They still need to eat. They still have to get dressed the same way everyone else does. And, um, I, you know, I know a few people who have become famous. And, you know, they're definitely, there is sort of an aura of otherness about them. But, you know, on a basic level, they're, they're still like us, the rest of us who are not so famous. And, and I think I was also really interested in ego. I just wanted to look at how ego changes the more attention you get. And also just the sort of, you know, contradiction that the more attention you get, the more you want it. So it's never enough. And that appetite is something that I think about a lot. I mean, just in my own experience as a writer, um, having four books out, what it's been like to find readers or not find readers and having to deal with my own desire to, to be known as a, as a, you know, a person involved in the literary community. It's it's just been a topic that I that I, I find like kind of endlessly interesting. Have you ever seen um this is a slightly embarrassing, but in Us magazine where they have that celebrities are just like us and it's like <laughs> Tom Cruise buys dog food and it's and I'm I always <laughs> we have a I work in a public library here in Chicago, and, and I often You have a subscription to Us Magazine I as well. do so not don't, have don't a subscription lie. to Us Magazine, but they're often <laughs> in the, the library. And, and they're often in the break room, and towards the end of the month, after I've been through all my magazines, you know, it's like sometimes you run out of things to eat, read while you're eating. But I, I always laugh to myself because it's like, yeah, he buys dog food <laughs> once a year, and then his, you know, Is multitudes he? of people that work for him do it yeah. the rest of the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, certainly there's there are, you know, different degrees of celebrity. Someone like Tom Cruise is different from someone just, you know, having their initial breakthrough as a comedian, for example. So, you know, I I I was interested in in exploring like in the title story, which is actually sort of a sequel to Little Known Facts, um with Ren Ivins and his son, that relationship in the novel is really central to the story and the jealousy. It was really sexual jealousy. It was the fact that Will, this guy who's 26, has a father who's, you know, 52, and all the women are interested in his father. And how is that when you're growing up and the girls you're attracted to are attracted to your father? It's like, you know, if you were the son of Harrison Ford, what would that be like? And that was really kind of what motivated me to write um, the title story, and also that, that novel. So it's, cause I just thought, like, even though you're related, I mean, you're still going to feel the same feelings that, like, if, let's say this guy's just your classmate. Well, it, it's really complicated if it's your father that you're jealous of. So that, that to me was, you know, those relationships, I just thought, how, how would you live with that? Like, someone like Julia Roberts, you know, she has a sister, and she also has her brother Eric Roberts, who I think 
when he he was really famous initially, and then she came along and eclipsed him, and he had all these problems oh, with substance oh, abuse. Are we you talking know? about? And I don't know if it's related. Eric Roberts. No, <laughs> no the actor, <laughs> like the Pope of Greenwich Village. Well, I mean, the yeah. movie, the Kickboxer, Eric Roberts was. In oh, it. I don't know. I didn't see. He was that. the Pope. Of, he was the Pope yeah. of Greenwich Village. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. That's yeah, Julia yeah. Roberts' brother. Julia Roberts' brother. Yeah. We should also yeah. point out the son of Harrison Ford is actually Kylo Ren, as any Star Wars fan knows. So <laughs> let's be real here. We know he slaughters people with a big red blade. So, uh, <laughs> I always thought about uh, being Eli and Peyton Manning's brother. They're both NFL quarterbacks, and then there, there's the like one brother, and his dad was an NFL quarterback. Yeah, Archie. Yeah, but but the brother, his brother, actually, I can't remember his name, but apparently he was the best athlete of all of them. He was seriously injured. Oh, he blew his shoulder out. He he was clearly well, considered the best of all the men. It, it would be hard not to be bitter, you know. Like apparently, <laughs> right. well, he apparently like went into insurance or something. Oh, okay. And and like is uh, I think he manages helps manage Peyton's career. He does the, like the nationwide commercials. But that this is all a side point. And uh, you know, we're talking about celebrity. It, it interests me because you said something uh, a couple minutes ago about your own celebrity or lack thereof. It's a, it's a strange thing to be writing right now, especially writing short stories, uh, because there aren't that many places that are publishing short stories. I have a very elaborate rant about that that I'm not going to go into right now. <laughs> but um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, the pleasures of, and the disappointments of it, because you know we have obviously this is close to our seventy fifth show, if if not oh, yeah. past that, and and every author oh, we've talked great. to uh, has as mentioned, you know some some of them are are wildly famous, you know, and and some of them are very successful, selling millions of copies, and some of them are are not, you know, they're happy to sell or or unhappy to sell, as the case may be, fifty to a hundred books. What what for you represented a way that you found success and fulfillment? at the the level that you you attained because i would you you seem like a mid-list author you know which Mm -hmm. in the old days was accurate yeah which in the old in the old days was actually a very um not lucrative but it was a it was a living Living, yeah Yeah, it it was a very stable living and and today i think the industry has changed so much and this is something we discuss in the show frequently that it's now very difficult to be picked up as a a mid-list author have have you i mean are you still under contract with bloomsbury please do we'd love to hear it yeah yeah well, I'm not under contract with Bloomsbury anymore, and I sold Virginity of Famous Men in my third book, Paris, he said, which is a novel, together in July of 2013. So the story collection was already written. I usually write stories sort of in tandem with longer-form fiction, and um, so that book was pretty much done. And then Paris, he said, was, I'd written the first 100 pages when I when I sold the two together, with my, when my agent, of course, was the one who made the sale. But um, since then... Despite having, you know, you know, I've had really good reviews for all of my books, which I've felt very fortunate, uh, you know, for that. But um, for whatever reason, and there are many, many reasons, as I'm sure you guys know, it's hard to sell books. And most of the time, like I learned this not long ago, I actually teach a publishing industry class at Northwestern. And one of the things I've learned is that books like, for example, Gone Girl or All the Light, uh, we cannot see which are two, you know, na- novels that were extremely successful commercially. Um, those books everyone knows about because most people, if they read it all, read like one or two books a year. So, and they often tend to read the same books. So, those books sell hugely because word of mouth and also bookstores like Barnes and Noble, the only national chain now, they, you know, really 
emphasize those books and they're up front and center and those are deals that they work out with the publishers. So people go into the bookstore, they buy those books and they read them and they talk about them. But most books on average, you're lucky to sell a thousand copies. So um, I have sold more than that, I think, for each of my books. I'm not positive, but, you know, I, I have done okay. But I'm in a position now where I still publish stories and journals quite a bit. Um, and I'm really happy about that. But, you know, those don't reach a lot of people. So you just get them out there and then maybe some other writers read them and maybe they end up in the best American short stories if you're extremely lucky or the O. Henry Prize stories. Those anthologies come out once a year. But I have not been able to sell a new book and um, I'm still writing them. But I've gotten to the point where we're just sort of now trying to go to independent presses because they have now sort of taken the overflow of all the authors like me in New York who haven't been able to sell their manuscripts and because our sales figures aren't good. There are, you know, other reasons probably. Um, there, There's just, you know, a lot of houses also admit, like, it's hard to sell fiction. We're better off selling political books right now because everyone is so focused on D.C. and what the president's doing every day. Right. And... So, yeah, I mean, it's been, I guess the rewards have been that when I talk to someone like you guys or I do readings or I talk to students and they've read some of my work, it's, we have this moment of sort of, you know, real connection where they understand how I see the world and maybe it helps them see the world in a, in a similar way or, I don't know, it's not like I'm trying to be of service to everyone, but I, I think I sort of want to, you know, celebrate the sort of absurdities and, and beautiful things in life and that's one of the main reasons I write it is nice to get paid like you do want to write with you, I do write with hope of the hope of reward too I mean you know publication and books and bookstores but uh, I'm just we're trying different tax we're taking different tax now it's I, I don't I hope I sell a new novel in the, in the next year or so we're going out with another story collection actually in the next week or two hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, I write nonfiction, um, and when I think my second book came out, the advance uh, was around thirty thousand um, dollars, which was a, well, That's that was a, that was a yeah. surprising amount. But I mean, nonfiction always pays more than fiction. Um, when I was solicited for my third book, and I I think I'm technically still under contract to Harker Bryce Jovanovich, um, they only offered ten. You know, so even in the nonfiction realm, and, and 10 is not mm-hmm. enough to take six months to a year to write a no. nonfiction book. <laughs> my, my specialty was, was international sports, and there's, there's absolutely no way you could do it on that. Uh, I, no. wrote a, I wrote a book about the World Cup, but it required travel and all this. And you couldn't go live <clears> in <throat> Europe for a year on 10 grand? I could not. No, not, not, oh not, in, not, in t- not in 20, uh, be, whatever it was, 2016 or 2018. You'd be hunting <laughs> pigeons with Orwell. And the <laughs> yes, I would be. I'd be living in, in Catalonia with George Orwell. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting that you bring this up, and I know Jeremy has a question, but one of the things that has struck me, and it struck me actually when reading your book, was because I was looking at the credits for where some of these short stories have been published, and it strikes me that one of the, the the real problems with short fiction right now is there's no place to actually get them published, uh, unless you are writing very straightforward genre fiction, in which case there's Alfred Hitchcock, perhaps Ellery Queen for mysteries. I think Ben Bova is still publishing, and Omni are still publishing, perhaps for science fiction. But it's mm-hmm. a real difference from even in the uh, 80s or 90s, and it's still a difference. Actually, uh, the British presses still exist to a smaller extent when there was a lot of lowbrow and middlebrow places that cu- that carried short fiction. You know, any magazine of um, 
repute, whether it was Esquire or Playboy or Harper's, would buy short fiction pieces. And, and they, they mm-hmm. no longer do that. Mm-hmm. And there was a number of lowbrow magazines, you know, anthologies that would do it. And, well, and those the, don't exist. A lot of people started... I know, like Lydia Millet. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Mm-hmm. She used to write for Hustler. Yeah. Yep, she wrote for Hustler. And, oh, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, I have yes. a friend who was a main editor there for a long time, she Alan was, yeah. McDonald. My mom, I, have I a believe, friend got from there first too, published. Actually, well, my mom, who's an author and it, it is also a midlist author, I believe one of her first nonfictions was published in Penthouse. Yeah, that's so that was about like and it pays well. It paid yeah, well. Those, yeah. they paid really. We're well. talking about major corporations, yeah. but the place I feel like there are. Uh, N plus f- one. Yeah, well, there's McSweeney's, there's Tin House, there's a the ton of university quarterlies. Well, they just don't pay. I, that's, I think, the thing, and that's the, to Christine's point, I think this is really interesting because we know about N plus one. We know about the Paris Review. We read the LRB mm-hmm. or the TLS. But most, this is a real difference when you used to go to a train station or a bus station and there were magazines on the oh, shelf that people could pick up and it was, you know, six or seven short pieces of fiction. And it might have been crappy. You know what I mean? And nobody said it was great, but it was a place for authors to have room to experiment. You know what I mean? It was a yeah. place to get a paycheck so you could at least survive writing that piece of garbage yeah. to, you know, yeah. got to watch my language here. But, uh, you know, to, to work on your novel. And, and you know, Christina, it, it struck me very much, you know, looking at the credits, it's Plowshares, it's, it's Antioch and stuff like that. In a way that strikes me as a very frustrating part of our time as somebody that is very interested in short fiction, which you seem to be. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, I definitely am responsible for the most part in placing my stories. My agent has sent a couple of pieces here and there to The New Yorker, which, you know, we've got nice notes back. Yeah, but, good luck you with know, them. They, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's definitely not easy. And Harper's does still publish stories, and I've tried them, but I've just gone through... The slush pile, and you know, sent in blind, and I don't. I mean, you just don't know who's reading the stories. It's probably an intern. It's not paid. You know, did Playboy so, stop? Did they stop doing fiction? Play, Playboy, I don't know. Playboy hasn't done fiction. They've they've totally relaunched. They now are a quarterly, and they oh. the last issue that I saw from them uh, after the re, after the third relaunch uh, did not have a, any fiction in it because they paid salad, right? They paid around ten ten k a piece. Yeah, because I I contributed some nonfiction to them. About sports, and they were outstanding. They were they were brilliant. They were godsends to people who lived in Chicago for a long time. They really <laughs> they, were. Yeah, they have advertising money, so they pay yeah. their writers yeah. a really good wage. And John Updike used to p- support a family of six on you That's know crazy. earnings that he made publishing stories in the New Yorker, yeah. which you know now is just not really feasible. So, I mean, I my I don't know. I mean, I love writing short stories. I do. I have written. Um, several novels now in the last six years, like four or five. I'm not kidding. Like, I kind of take John Updike as my role model. He just would sit in the chair every day, write for a few hours, and you get you get things done. And I've been writing, you know, prose for more than 25 years, so I'm proficient at it, and I can do it. Um, it you know, I think people think, like, oh, there's this magic formula. You sit down, and you light the candles, and you play the, <laughs> the, um, uh-huh. the Yanni CD, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, um, but you just sit down and you do it and you do have to block out distractions i mean that's not easy for a lot of people certainly but you know i i'm just persistent but i also really love writing i mean i i tell people like if you're going to be a writer you cannot expect to become famous it might happen but it's you know that's it's not it's just it's even more unlikely it's more likely not to happen yeah did you read, by the way, as a John Updike fan, before we pause over to Jeremy, did you read Patricia Lockwood's takedown of him in the London Review of Books? 
I, I haven't. Oh, was you it have really, to. Um, it was brilliant. Her, her first line is, you don't hire a 39-year-old woman uh, to review John Updike in 2019 unless you want to see blood on the ceiling. I'm a paid assassin. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, goes, it goes from there, and she's amazing, so it was great. I actually like Updike. Do you? Yeah. She, Pat, Pat Lockwood, uh, actually, uh, it was a little more charitable than that, but it's a... She she has some memorable lines. Like He wrote like an angel uh, unless he was writing like a malfunctioning sex robot. It was really, really good stuff. I, I read like the first Rabbit. Rabbit, book. yeah. yeah and Rabbit, I thought Rabbit. it was all right. I never got deep into his uh, catalog. Um, I did, however, Christine, since we are talking about short fiction, I wanted to ask you a question. This popped up earlier in my head. We are talking about um, this, the name of the story is escaping me, where the son is jealous of his father. Because mm-hmm. the oh, that's gr- the first one, yeah, yeah. Well, the the the, the, the title of, story, the Virginia famous yeah. man. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Duh. And then, um, sorry, but I that it it sparked in my head that in Beach Vacation, in at the at the end, uh, and I loved the ending of that story, and I loved what the mother did. Same. I'm not. I, Thank you. I, the entitlement uh, that it's, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm almost fifty, and. People seem so much more entitled now than ever, and it drives me nuts. Like, if I talked mm-hmm. to my mother like that, like, I would have went right through the wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I came up yeah. in a blue-collar family. You weren't disrespectful to your mom or dad. However, was that – would you also, I mean, thematically say that that story similar to the virginity of famous men? Because she's – you know, at the end of the story, his um, her son's talking to – you know, a hot older woman in a bikini by the pool, and then she gets, you know, she's not really too pleased about that. I'm, I'm trying not to spoil it. Um, but it, I, there was a, thematically, I think, it, someone asked me what your story is about, and I said they're about relationships, all kinds of relationships and all the ups and downs and troubles mm-hmm. that we have. But I, I, I would say the opener and closer both dealt with jealousy. Was that intentional, or is that just the luck of the order? I think it was mainly just the order, the luck of the order. I And the thing is, like, with the mother, I'm, you know, I'm really glad that you... It's funny because I've talked about that story quite a bit, and I've visited some English classes, and we've talked about that story, and high school students, you know, sometimes they see their siblings, like, oh, my brother's just like that. He's such a jerk. But other people have really sympathized with, with um, Tristan. With the, the son, and, Yeah, and I, he's such a jerk. I'm sorry. I, I, was like, I have to show my hand. Yeah, I, I was, like, pumped about the mom. I was like, get him! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a real impulse, you know, and also, um, yeah, I mean, she wasn't so much, I didn't see her so much as jealous in a way, she's definitely jealous of him be- giving more attention to other females, you know, especially the girl initially who's there with her parents and then the older woman. But I think it's more fear. Like, she's just afraid of him becoming, you know, she's worried about him being a huge jerk. Horrible human being, yeah. Yeah, and she feels responsible. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't have kids. I I just, I think I did too much babysitting when I was little. I just was like, ah. This is not for me. Done. And, yeah. and, and only so one of us I, here has kids, so Mike. So. Yeah, and she's work. too young to I speak. Mean, so. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just thought, you know, I know how hard it is to raise kids because I've seen my good friends and family members. I'd, I'd be and, interested you know. to, to be in that room when you're talking to the younger kids because what hap- the way I felt while I was reading that story is she's, she's sort of in a catch-22. She doesn't. She's in an age where hitting your kid is not normal. 
um, even like verbally being aggressive with there your child is considered. Well, well I'm, it came out in 2016. Yeah, it's fine. Just in generic terms, you know, I haven't gotten specific. Even being verbally aggressive, she's she's not really willing to do that with him you know she mm-hmm. she tries to be mm-hmm. stern but on the other hand she's worried he's going to be uh, uh, a complete jerk as an adult and so we're left at the end with a decision that she makes and um you know one of the things you're left thinking about is what are the consequences of that and i feel like there's a totally different mindset between jeremy's generation and the the high school generation now whereas the older one would think her decision is normal, and the younger one would think, "Oh, it's going to traumatize the kid for years to come." And mm-hmm. I, I was wondering if if that was kind of the reaction of the high school kids. You know, it's interesting because a lot of them really, I think, felt like she was justified in the way she responded to his, you know, smart mouth. And it was often like, for example, the teachers would say, "Like, oh, I really, you know." At first, I thought, "Oh, he Tristan's such a jerk," and then I realized Jan is just awful, the mother. And I, and I thought, really, I don't think that at all, you know. But I could see why they say that. They would argue that she was, you know, just going flying off the handle, and she should have been able to control herself better. And I see, the, I see the point, you know. But having been raised in the seventies, kids were still smacked when they were. Oh yeah. You know, oh yeah. Off. I was. I was slapped. Yeah, I, was I mean, it's not like it was often, but I probably I mean it it worked. Like I stopped being a jerk. My mom know, had a my mom. spoon and if the Ooh, spoon the came spoon. out you ran. <laughs> oh, the spoon. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays your neighbors would have you arrested if they happened to see you through yeah. your window, you know, like beating your kid briefly with a wooden spoon on his butt, you know. So I right. It just is, you know, it's a different time. I think now, it depends on what neighborhood you're into. <laughs> well, I was, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, and we we do have to go to a break real quickly. We haven't even gotten to to a reading from your book. We're going to do that after we uh, thank our sponsors. But real briefly, I would say that the one thing that's really interesting between the generation that I think uh, we grew up in and now is that adults actually used to take a more active role in neighborhood kids as well. If kids were screwing around, I mean, you were also Did kind of expected. Did you ever get smacked by a neighbor? Uh, I plead the fifth on that. <laughs> I, I actually have been smacked by one of my friend's parents, yeah. like just and oh also God. and screamed at like multiple yeah. times. Yeah. And like one time when we were in high school, my friend Jeremy was a bad kid. I was a very bad kid, and one of my friends was even worse <laughs> than I was. Um, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. But his dad, we came home. My he went on a rampage. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, and he whacked me, and we both had to run out of the house and like take off. So. Well, there oh you go. <laughs> Different era. Different era. I told my be, parents. And yeah, he'd I, be in handcuffs. I told yeah. my parents. My mom's like, you shouldn't act like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on so that, let me call him and thank him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On that note, Christine, can you hang out for another half hour with us? Sure. Yeah, okay, great. So we are going to just take a quick break here. We're going to thank the folks that make this station possible. And then after we come out of the break, we're going to hear the first reading from The Virginity of Famous Men by Christine Sneed. As always, our reader is Ms. Shanna Van Volt. Music today is by Makai McCraven. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to 105.5 FM, WLPNLP Chicago, Lumpin' Radio. This is I-94. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
What happened is nothing new or surprising. Antony left me for a popular actress when he'd met a year earlier on the set of his 14th feature film. The film flopped, which pleased me. Before marrying him, other people's failures had rarely made me happy, but when I began to sense that his interest in me was fading, I turned petty, often mean. The actress was his lover in the flop, and I'd known as soon as he told me that she had been cast to play the female lead that things I could not hope to control were going to happen. She was impossible to dismiss. It wasn't only her beauty and fame, both greater than mine, or her age, which was less than mine. She's the type of person who cares about causes. She cares about them publicly, but genuinely, I will admit. She has raised and donated sizable sums of money for the construction of schools and hospitals and women's shelters in countries I had never previously considered visiting, let alone donating any portion of my earnings to. Hers, somehow, is a voice that people in power here and abroad listen to. More than any other reason, I dislike her because she reminds me that I am not good enough, not kind enough, and that my causes are laughable because few extend beyond my front door. I'm aware that most people live their lives the same way as I do. No one is more important to us than ourselves. It is simply the nature of our species, of any species, I suppose, but this thought is not a comfort. We had one phone conversation, accidentally, while Antony and I were in the process of divorcing. She picked up his cell phone one morning, probably forgetting to look at the display to see who was calling. But I also wonder if she saw my name in the liquid crystal, and for a wild, breathless second, she needed to know the words I had been saving up to say to her. We both froze when we heard each other's voices. I finally mumbled, I guess it's Antony isn't free? I couldn't even pretend that I didn't recognize her voice. He's not here. There was something in her tone I couldn't pin down, shame or only weariness. When will he be back? I'm not sure. A few hours, maybe? If I'd been capable of organizing a coherent thought, I would probably have said something unforgivable to her then. Something she would remember and worry over, possibly for the rest of her life. Something that she would think was true, even if it wasn't. That she had no talent. That he would cheat on her too if he hadn't already. That he was cheating on her now with me. I only asked her to tell him to call me back, my heart beating so hard I was sure that it would have burst from my chest if my breastbone hadn't been there to hold it down. The Caribou movie was his 16th feature film. It ended up doing very well, its box office receipts respectable, the director and one of the co-stars winning prestigious awards. I didn't go to see it. Anthony did not appear at the foot of our bed in the morning after his breakup phone call. He did not appear in person at our home until two and a half weeks later, during a scheduled hiatus in the film's production. Instead, he sent emissaries, three of his closest friends, one at a time, to tell me how embarrassed and regretful he was, how he hoped we could both be reasonable, how he hoped I'd eventually understand and forgive him. Coward, I said. Stupid, cowardly bastard. I wanted him to fall through the Canadian ice. I wanted him to get frostbite. I hoped that certain crucial body parts would fall off. I said these childish things to anyone who would listen, and at first there were too many people who did. Then, within four days, the news of our collapse began to appear in the papers, a big headline in a few of the sleazier ones, along with the most unflattering pictures of me that they could find, ones where my eyes were half-closed or I appeared to be snarling, ones where I looked drunk but wasn't at all, each printed with falsehood-riddled articles. Antony looked angelic, innocent, desirable. The onus, somehow, on me, as if I had driven him into the arms of a more beautiful and worthy woman. In some photos, her head was superimposed onto pictures where my head had actually been. Antony, with his arm around my waist, whispering in my ear, kissing my cheek, looking the adoring husband, his hand at the small of my back, his body leaning protectively towards mine. 
These were old pictures, ones from our courtship and first year of marriage. I wanted to sue the sleaze rags, but knew there would be a waste of time and money. The pictures and the stories were already out there. Nothing could be done to get them back. And that was a selection from Christine Sneed's short story, The First Wife. It was read by, as always, Shanna Van Volt. Music this week by Micaiah McCraven. And one note, we want to make uh, everyone know that we do not censor things, but due to FCC rules, we did have to alter some of Christine's language in that story. We apologize to her for that. Uh, Christine, that was, uh, we chose that story. Actually, I chose that story because it kind of goes back to something that you were talking about uh, at the very start of the show, celebrity and the kind of artificiality of some of these relationships and your attempt to humanize some of these people. Could you speak a little bit about what uh, your thrust was in writing the story? You know, I actually saw this article years ago when Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt were separating, and apparently they used to have a bathroom that had two sinks, his and her sinks. And after he moved out, and of course he left her for Angelina Jolie, um, she had the second sink taken out and had her bathroom redone. So it was just her own bathroom with one sink. And I thought, oh, my God, it would just be, I mean, you know, Jennifer Aniston herself is very famous and beautiful, but I just was trying to imagine what would it be like, you know, to be left by someone like Brad Pitt for someone like Angelina Jolie. And, of course, Jennifer Aniston's not a screenwriter like the character who's, the you know, the, the main character in The First Wife is, but... I, wa- I kind of wanted to explore that idea of just, if it's the worst possible thing, you know, you can imagine. And, and what do you do when it happens? God, I'm trying to think of what it would be like to have two sinks. <laughs> <laughs> i got to be honest with you. That sounds pretty bold. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> sounds pretty amazing. Uh, I have four sinks, five sinks in my house. Five sinks, okay. Yeah. Five um, sinks. One of the, my favorite parts of this story was at the conclusion on pages 42 and 43 when you talked about a man who holds clever salons and some of the discussions I had are two people who can afford it deserve to have more than one or two kids. And my favorite question of all time is sushi, a big con because uh, <laughs> I, I would love to have that debate actually. If sushi is a con. Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, do, Christine, do you think sushi is a con? You know, I, I mean, not any more of a con than pretty much anything else is in a restaurant that, you know, sort of caters toward, you know, specialty taste. I mean, I guess sushi is pretty mainstream now, but I, I do feel like, you know, you really have to pay a lot to get full. So, yeah. I, I, mean, <laughs> you, I mean... You have really good sushi in Cal. I will say in Los Angeles, you do get excellent sushi. And I believe there's an excellent sushi restaurant in Pasadena, too. They're pro- yeah, there's actually some really good restaurants here, but... Um, I, I'm mostly vegan, though, so I have not been ah. eating any animal-based I just want to remind you guys while. that I uh, make and deliver <laughs> clear ice cubes for a living. Yeah, Mike, Mike <laughs> sells artisanal ice. At, for, and uh, it's a yeah. thing. It's an actual, like, when we first heard about it, I'm like, come on. But it's a really, it's a thing. Yeah. It's oh, hun- hundreds of clients great. in Chicago. Uh, it's really weird. <laughs> and is, is, well, is clear ice a con? Yes. yes. <laughs> it's probably great, yeah. It so. melts slower, Jamie. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Uh, I, you know, I don't it's know if so sushi silly. is a, I don't know if sushi's a con. I think it's a con in the United States. But, like, if you're in Asia, you know, and I've spent a bunch of time there, you know, most people I mean, in Korea and China and Japan eat raw fish fairly yeah. frequently, and it's not necessarily a I wacky thing. I ate 7-Eleven sushi. What are you being conned out of? 
Well, your money, I think, yeah. here. You know, there's a lot of money involved in American sushi. Because, oh. you, you know, you can yeah. drop 100 bucks on sushi and be hungry. Diesel, and maybe I just go to the places who have... All you can you get the hearty portions. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that was sort of the joke. I'm like, okay, you got to find somewhere where they're not just giving you a sliver of fish. China all buffet right. doesn't count, Mike. My, Mike. Mike usually eats at the the gas station down the Seven Eleven sushi. But uh, that's uh, thank you. I'm glad we had this little digression. Yeah, sushi. I, this is well, you know, I, when I read that, I, I like chuckle. I'm like, it is a con, you know. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm I'm really fascinated by the fact though that you wrote very um, knowingly, I should say, about some of the things in the entertainment industry. And I say that because I happen to work in the entertainment industry for about 12 years. I was with Fox. And mm-hmm. some of the characterizations and some of the stuff uh, felt very true. And kind of going back to it, I mean, you were just a fan. You had no, before your present attempts to write screen uh, screenplays and other screenwriting things, you had really no insight into that industry at all? Well, I, I mean, in a sense, I did. Out of my partner, um his sister works in the industry, and okay. she does things now like um, directing America's Got Talent in uh, Las Vegas, like the live shows. Mm-hmm. And she did. She was the direct creative director for the big Aerosmith residency that they did in April, and I think it's extended. So she's worked with a lot of extremely famous people. And, you know, I, I didn't pick her brain or anything, and I wrote a lot of these stories early on um, before. I mean, I guess I'd met Amy at that point, but because... It's been 10 years that I've been with Adam, but I think a lot of it was just sort of like osmosis, like observing, you know, behavior of famous people in interviews and just sort of extrapolating, you know, what it would be like to have kind of everything you want at any point that you want it and just what that would do to you. Materialistically, but it would make you nuts. It would make me nuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and I think too, like, and also, like, for me, it was for, especially with the characters in *Virginity of Famous Men*. Ren Ivins, that story. Though he's the famous actor and also director and screenwriter, he could have any. Like, he basically, when he was younger, he could have any woman he wanted. You know, I mean, provided she was straight. So, just having, I was thinking of someone like Jude Law, who I heard through, you know, the grapevine was has like this. He's sort of just. He was, you know, really voracious sexually, and I think a lot of actors. You know, if you have beautiful people throwing themselves at you all the time, well, you're not always going to say no, probably. So if you have enough attractive options, you're probably going to exercise them occasionally, whether you think you will or not. Things I I found in in that story, The First Wife, is she says somewhere, uh, the narrator, what happened is nothing new or surprising. So she almost anticipated it happening or knew it was a possibility to begin with. And... That's one of the things I found interesting in a lot of the stories. It wasn't just that this myth buster that famous people are abnormal or are normal when we thought they were on some pedestal. It's the fact that they they're not immune to things that they they know might happen in in their relationships, mm-hmm. like being in an open relationship, um, or or the fact that they're their spouse is going to be on the road a lot with a lot of other beautiful people. They, they know the potential is there and that it probably will happen, but then they go ahead with it anyway. Um, right. And it's kind of, that was, uh, I can't remember the name of the story. It'd be like dating Warren Beatty in his heyday. You know, it's like, you know, this dude's going to have somebody <laughs> else in a year. Right. I mean, right. Well, that, yeah. But that's like, that's another thing that, that normal people do too. Like, uh, what do they call it? Um, 
people who have multiple partners now. Bigamist. Pair Pol- of, polyamory. 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 Yeah. 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 A buddy of ours just moved out to Seattle. Apparently everyone's into polyamorous relationships. Out in of, Seattle. Yes. It's a big thing in Seattle. Apparently. Okay. But, but of course, <laughs> you know, no, no, no matter how open. And heroin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No matter how open they are, how open they think they are, problems always, always arise. Well, you have yeah. problems when you're in a relationship with one other people, and then if you have a relationship with four people, then you have four times the problems, right? I, I wouldn't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, I always, I, you know, I always hear, when I hear people say, oh, we're getting a divorce, or we're just separating, or we're just, we're not separating, we're still living together, but we're, you know, going to experiment with an open relationship. I'm like, okay, you're getting a very slow divorce. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like, I mean, I think naturally, I mean, there are people who don't aren't susceptible to jealousy but i think most of us have moments where we are jealous and maybe very jealous and so it's just hard i mean it's hard being with someone anyway long term but yeah. yeah i just was really interested in that and i just thought like what if you have every option you can act you can exercise every single option you want and it's just if you know people talk about it it's really a devil's bargain you know it's it's hard to be content when you know that you can always do something else right well, it also takes the work out of it. Like, I have to work to be in a relationship. Well, yeah, I mean, I yeah. think everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, yeah, I'm just saying in general. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. right. People, yeah. people have to work to be in relationships. And to me, it's kind of like a cop out. Well, like, you know, if I don't have to work hard on this relationship, I'll go hang out with this person. You know, I don't know. Yeah. To me, it's weird. But I'm also, again, it's a generational thing. I don't Probably. like entitled 20-year-olds, and I'm not into polyamory, so... Well, there you go. Well, I think it's a sign of maturity, too. Like, eventually, you're kind of like, all right, well, you know, I feel like I'm better and I'm happier when I'm focused on one person. And also, like, it takes a lot of time to screw around. Like, I would rather write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I would rather write and read and see movies and exercise and, you know, do things like that than, like, run around Absolutely. outside and... yeah. Well, before we, you know, actually, I want to go, but Jeremy had mentioned something, you know, about uh, some of this would drive him insane. And I do want to play a clip from another story in your book before we let you go, The Functionary, and come back and talk to you briefly about it. So here is a segment of somebody somebody who's actually going uh, a little haywire. Uh, So we'll be back in about three minutes. Listen to this. It is a clip from Christine's The Virginia New Famous Man, the short story, The Functionary. In the underground room, talks focused on new weapons technology and assassination plots, both at home and abroad, and the secretary invited him to go down with him among the important smokers less often than usual. Apparently, he was needed in the office, where he was instructed to spend less time on the newspapers in favor of writing notes and sketches related to the major world events of the past several years, ones that the secretary said he would use as the basis for his memoirs. After several days of writing detailed notes about earthquakes, hurricanes, genocide, suicide bombings, tsunamis, typhoons, school shootings, military coups, famine, water shortages, oil crises, mudslides, boat recounts, earthquakes, domestic terrorism, and prison riots, Marcus thought he could see ghosts in the middle of the night, faceless wraiths that collected at his bedroom window and looked on while he lay in bed and tried not to see them. He began to leave the lights on and covered his face with a pillow, but could rarely sleep for more than an hour at a time. At his work, his eyes dark and baleful. Jennifer and the other office staff eyed him warily, but said nothing. Few appeared better off. Instead of sketches, he began to write lists. At first, they were practical. Old movies he wanted to see, cities he hoped to visit. But soon his lists became flippant and indulgent. Actresses he planned to seduce, 
sports cars he would drive off cliffs if ever told to do so. Sweaty palmed him with a queer feeling of victory, he left one of these lists on the secretary's desk, but it was briskly intercepted by Jennifer, who brought it back to him, holding the yellow legal paper in front of her chest like a squalid rag. Her shoulders were small and shapely, her waist tiny in her cinched shirt dress. He wondered if she, too, watched pointless comedies and hated herself for it. The current state of the union, catatonia, drug, and food-induced obliviousness. Are you trying to get yourself arrested? She said, eyes wide behind her decorative eyeglasses. He blinked. Arrested? They can do whatever they want to you. You know that as well as anyone. Why do you care what happens to me? I care what happens to me, she said. For all I know, I could be implicated in this. The list was, what I did at work today. Ghostwritten by Marcus for the secretary, who would not have liked it, not at all, but Marcus doubted that he would have suspected Jennifer of collusion. 1. Took call from Premier S. Assured him we would keep backing arrests. 2. Named some of the dead women after famous actresses in report. Jane, Marilyn, Joan, Barbara, Jody 1, Jody 2, Brooke, Claire, Stephanie, Rita, Catherine, Julia, Jill, Amy, Faye, Sarah, Helena, Julianne, Courtney, Liz, Jean, Karen, Annie, Jenna, Zoe. 3. Looked at three favorite skin sites. 4. Had lunch with the Reverend, the General, and the VP to discuss monitoring of human rights activists. 5. Gave all clear for airstrike on Market District and Insurgents Triangle of Influence. 6. Had Jay make appointment for teeth cleaning and checkup, 4.23, 8 a.m. I don't think he looks at porn while he's in office, Jennifer whispered. I've never seen anything like that. Ha, that's my favorite line in the entire book right there. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, so that, that to me, and that was actually my favorite story in the book as well. Mine um, too, yeah. Uh, oh, thank you. I, I enjoy that because, uh, you know, having worked in the corporate world, though not in an underground bunker for mysterious men who could probably have me shot, though Fox Sports, you know, they probably could have me drawn and quartered. Um, you know, uh, I, I that felt both very realistic to me. The, the ending of the story was not as realistic, uh, to be candid, but the, the actual uh, kind of descent into madness uh, did feel very real from the, the stress, the pressure, and the entire uh, irrationality of it. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, what made you explore that particular uh, idea? Before we start, though, I did want to plug my favorite story was What's-His-Name. I'm just saying before we continue. Oh, I like uh, writing that story so much. Yeah, I go. loved writing that, that story, That was my actually. favorite. Okay. Well, I'm glad Mike, you liked it. Mike and I are two to one of the functionaries. <laughs> yeah, I lose. You're overruled. But but continue, Christine. Um, I wrote that story after um, I would, I you know, Probably, well, it's probably still going on, but all these dead bodies were, you know, on, they were found in, I think, in Mexico, and they were women. Yeah, see it out of And they, yeah, still yeah all the, all the, you know, they, they suspected cartels and, you know, and I, and so I was thinking, like, what would it be like if you were a young man of conscience who is working for the federal government, and, you know, one of your tasks is basically to try to whitewash this. So, people aren't as horrified and demanding that we find a way to deal with this issue in Mexico. And, and so I, and I didn't ever name Mexico, of course. And, 
it was just a story that, I, I mean, I wanted to write something that was witty, but also political and also dark. And I wasn't sure what would happen, you know, but I just had this idea of this character and and knew kind of vaguely that I wanted to write about um, these crimes and just the way that they sort of take over sometimes and become obsessive for people. What was really interesting to me is, is he the the main character makes the move from outside the sphere of knowledge and power into it. And there's no way of knowing before he enters in how much it's going to take over his life. And right. it, it, see, it was just so realistic, the, the interview process that he, that he had to go through, how little he knew about the job. He just knew there was prestige to it. And then once he's in, he's, that's it. You're, you're, you're in. You're stuck. Yeah. The thing that also resonated with me, and uh, I had not recently, but I, I don't know if you've ever read Roberto Bolaño's 2666, yeah. yes. which is about that was, the Yeah, thing. I was thinking about that, too. Well, I was thinking I about it. I have read it, though. Oh, I, well, I've, I've read it, and, and there's long it's sections phenomenal. when it's just recitations, the names of, of dead women in Ciudad Juarez, and I was remembering that, and then there are things in the story, your story, that made me laugh. 26, 20, 2666 is not exactly a comedy masterpiece, no. if, if you get my drift <laughs> no, here. There are comical sections. There are comical know. sections. Uh, well, but, that one section about those dead women, that was like 400 pages yeah. long, and it's each one is listed and where they were found and how they were yeah, they, they, yeah, they put a live production play of 2666 on in Chicago. I forget which. It was a little black box theater. But yeah. that there's a scene that goes for probably five minutes where they're just listing yeah. woman it's after like, woman. It's like being hit in the head with a Carl of a yeah. book over and over yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, But I, I remembered that when I was reading this, and it, it made me laugh even more uh, to your story. And I wondered if you had had kind of the same experience. Uh, you, were, you were trying to find some of the humor in what is not a humorous situation. Um, yeah, I think that was what I was trying to do, but I found that, I mean, you mentioned John Updike again. His, he said his default mode was the comic, <clears throat> and I, I think that's probably the case with me, too. I find that even when I'm trying to write something really serious, I end up taking this detour toward something that ends up being sort of absurd or, I hope, funny. And, I, I mean, I just really think... For me, it's more fun if there's humor in my stories, even when I'm writing about really serious topics. And and I think also just my view of the world, despite how incredibly frightening it can be, and also just incredibly sad, like crushingly sad. I I just find that, I, like Woody Allen, he's like, life's too important to be taken seriously, you know? And um, so I find that I'm usually trying to make light of things that really upset me because it's the only way that I can not go crazy. Right. Well, we've been speaking today with Christine Sneed. She is the author of The Virginity of Famous Men. It's out from Bloomsbury. Christine, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Christine. Really oh, my God, it. I had a blast. Awesome. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you guys for being such attentive readers. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for doing it. And as always, we're going to let you have the last word. We're going to go out with a final reading from your book. Uh, it is from Roger Weber would like to stay because I love ghost stories. So uh, we're going to close with that. Uh, Christine, is, do you have a website where people can get some more information about you? Uh, yes, it's just christinesneed.com. So my name.com after okay. it. So readers, if you're looking for more information on Christine, uh, her hopefully upcoming published novels and short stories, you can go there. Christine, thanks so much for joining us from LA again. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. All right, really take care, fun. Christine. Our next show is Jack Jemka. It is live at the dial. You have been listening to I-94 here on Luppin Radio. Throughout the day, the grisly thought plagues her. She is going crazy. 
She has survived these same doubts on other occasions, especially when Roger first began his nightly visits from the 11th dimension to her bedroom at 314 Myrtle Lane, but this time her misgivings are fierce. She knows that if she were to see a doctor, he would probably want to lock her up and medicate her for schizophrenia. And who's to say she isn't schizophrenic? This is the real problem. She has no idea anymore if she is, in fact, a sane human being. All of her years as the smart and sturdy, but rather spinsterish in some people's ignorant estimation, Merrily Crowley are perhaps about to end because of one jealous, slippery ghost whose womanizing tendencies were not snuffed out by death. Who knew how many other vulnerable women he haunted? Who knew where he spent his daylight hours? On the other side of the world, where it is night, maybe in Japan, he might have a favorite geisha girl or a house full of concubines. She can't put it past him now. Roger Weber, dead concert pianist and inveterate Romeo, murdered by his wife for breaking her heart a few too many times, must be banished from her home. She wants her sanity and freedom restored as soon as possible. At lunch over her turkey and cheese sandwich, she decides she might even tell him that she will hire a priest to exercise him if he refuses to go. This is a lie, but she spends the lunch hour convincing herself that it isn't so, that Roger will not be able to read the truth in her thoughts. That evening, she does not return home until almost 8.30, but Roger is there as usual, patiently waiting for her when she comes through the back door, hovering next to the kitchen table where an untidy heap of objects has been dumped. She feels cross, wondering why he is cluttering up her house, but he beams at her, very pleased with his mess. Do you recognize this? He says, pointing to a golden earring in the shape of a dolphin on the pile's fringe. She sets down her grocery bags and peers at the earring. No, she says. I don't think so. Sixth grade, he says. You lost it when you got on the bus on May 12, 1985. The back was loose and the earring fell to the street. How about this? His finger pokes through a tattered notebook with a paper cover meant to resemble pink denim. This she remembers, her diary from seventh grade to ninth. She worried that a classmate had stolen it, but prayed that it had fallen down a manhole or into a garbage can or had somehow been devoured by a wild dog. Someone did steal it. Roger confirms. Reese Spiffin, or was it Reggie Spinner? Something along those lines. The name's a little foggy. Oh my god, she says, dumbfounded. Where on earth did you find it? She sees now what this pile is. Lost objects, many of them items that had caused her something close to heartbreak when she discovered they were missing. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Christine Sneed, author of The Virginity of Famous Men, out now from Bloomsburg. This episode originally aired on November 10, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.